Hello, and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI president Robert Doerr. We'll be your Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us on Banter today is John Bailey, who's a senior fellow with us at AEI, where he studies artificial intelligence, including how AI applies to education and broadband expansion. Um, And before joining us at AEI, he was a special assistant to the president for domestic policy. He previously worked as the deputy policy director to the U.S. Secretary of Commerce and served as the director of educational technology at the Department of Education. Thanks for joining us, John. Oh, my gosh. Thanks for having me. It's great to have John, you know, artificial intelligence and real intelligence. He has real intelligence. (laughs) He's got them both. (laughs) Well, the artificial part, he can tell us about what it is. But but in the sort of the the community of AEI, John is thought of as both really intelligent and also really charming and nice and friendly and wonderful to have around. So it's great to have him. Mm -hmm. And he does have this interesting intersection between technology and education. Uh, and artificial intelligence is right in there. So let's get right into it, John. Is is this something to be frightened of? I think, well, I think it's something to be excited about. Uh, maybe a little bit of frightened. Uh, it, it's, it's a pretty transformative moment. Like I, experiencing this wave of artificial intelligence feels like it did... Back and you're the, talking about ChatGBT and Chat Bard and, That's right. and Microsoft jumping ahead of Google and Google having an emergency mm-hmm. board meeting to deal with this new competition. Right. You're going to tell us all about that. That's right. This is this um, type of artificial intelligence called a large language model. And what it is, there are these artificial intelligence systems that are trained on an enormous volume of text. Pretty much every book has ever been written, including yours, Robert. Yeah. Um, most yeah. of the internet, one. all of Wikipedia. And then what's amazing about this is that the AI systems are trained to detect patterns in speech. And so it, 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 delivers results that feel very human-like. It sounds very human. And as a result, uh, it's kind of completely transformed the way that you interact with this. And that's why it's called a chat, because you chat with it. And you chat with it for chat Bing, chat GBT, and then Google's version is called BARD. But it's a pretty magical moment when you start working and using some of these tools. And are they, uh, you know, I have to, I confess, mm-hmm. I have not actually used one. I don't have the application on my computer but are they widely available? Can people buy them? And cons- it's it's in it's out there right now. Right. It's I mean, when uh, OpenAI released ChatGPT, it became the fastest adopted technology in history. So it, it got to millions of users uh, in a matter of days that took Instagram almost a year to get mm-hmm. to. And that's the that's why this is spreading so quickly is because it's all web based. Then also all these big companies are beginning to embed these products inside of their other products. So Microsoft will start putting some of these AI capabilities into Microsoft Office. Google announced that they'll start rolling this out through their office suites. Then also you're just having hundreds of companies use these technologies to develop new products and new services. And, new and I always wonder, so when you say they're adopting and using these products that are either by OpenAI, which is one company, which is heavily owned by Microsoft, or, or was it heavily no, no, invested? They, they, that's right. They have a partnership with Microsoft. So does, just one quick question. Does that immediately mean dollars are flowing to Microsoft and them in big ways? They're making money hand over fist. Well, Microsoft is spending a lot of money to get this technology, and so is Google. And that's also unique at this moment. They're Usually. finally earning back some of that investment now? Is that <laughs> what's Happening? Well, I think what's happening is that usually you have uh, disruptive technology comes from a startup. It's a startup taking on a really big competitor. 
And in this case, you have the really big companies, the incumbents, actually launching and scaling this technology very quickly. And that's it's Google, it's Microsoft, it's also Meta. Meta and Facebook are also deploying their own AI tools, too, that we'll start seeing out in the, the real world here pretty soon. So are, are you telling me that there are three competitors for the consumer's dollar? Oh, there's numerous competitors. There's smaller companies. And also the way to think about this is a lot of these are AI systems that power other different types of tools. So the same way that you would use a technology that um, is through the, the web, but it's powered by a whole bunch of different technologies in the back end. That's what I think a lot of us will start experiencing AI when you're actually using a company's website, but then it's powered by ChatGPT or it's powered by Google Bard or one of these other technologies. So the simple uh, where I am in this is that, and tell me if I've got this wrong, is that if I'm a huge consumer of Google, I love Google, I go to Google search all the time, I love the search engine. I, I put in a question, it gives me a variety of answers, I pick the answer I want and I follow up with that. The, what I hear about this is that, is that it doesn't give you options, it just tells you the answer. Is that true? Do I have that right in my mind? Well, it depends on how you use it. I, I like to think of this as a metaphor that Google and search engines are a little bit like a librarian. You go to it with a question and it points you to where a group of resources where the answer might be found. The way to sort of think about, I think, some of these large language models like ChatGPT, it's almost like having a research assistant uh, in your pocket that you can ask it a question, give it a task, and it'll do an analysis and give you a good first draft. But you could also ask you ask it to give you five different analysis or five different ideas. And that's what's sort of amazing about this is that you can generate an endless list of brainstorming ideas or different options to consider. Mm -hmm. okay, uh, and so so I know you've been one of the you've been asked to test Bard, the Google version of uh, the large language model. Can you tell us how that's been? I know we were talking about it a little bit before, but did you see anything concerning? Have any crazy stories like what's been reported? Well, I, I've had the, the privilege of being invited to be an early tester with some of these systems. So mm -hmm. OpenAI, as well as Google Bard, and as well as a few others. And yeah, the story, it was the New York Times reporter that had yeah. this very long sort of chat back and forth with, at the time it was Bing, uh, Bing chat, which was powered by GBT. And the system ended up falling, saying it fell in love with him. It's trying to convince him to leave his wife. And he just talked about how unsettled he felt with that. And that's, I, I've seen this with a number of other people who are very experienced working with technology. I will say like in the spirit, the, the, the reason these companies have released these tools right now is to test these systems and also surface where they're biased and also where there are some problems. And so Microsoft very quickly fixed Bing after that experience with the New York Times reporter. What, what I've said, uh, we found a couple of different occasions where um, some of these systems will write a very positive poem or essay about President Biden, but will not do the same thing about President Trump. Uh, we gave a political ideology test from Pew, Pew Charitable Trust, uh, to the systems, uh, and it skewed a little center left at the end when it sort of rated them. Conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom, wisdom also, I think, which is what the left dominates in America. But it's also... Uh, in again, to their company's credits, they're using this to fine tune it, to align it, to make it a little bit more balanced and neutral. And they don't know. They don't know until people like us test it and give them feedback, and then they recalibrate the machines on the, uh, the other end. So you're saying that you could, you could be a student and you could ask this a question about some public policy issue in the United States, and the answer that it would give back would be more likely to be unbiased and fair than them asking the same question to 
what, 80% of professors at major universities in America? You know, it's a good question. I think I think it depends on how you ask the question. I think the, the, the strengths and weaknesses of all these systems is that what you get out on the other side depends a little bit on the type of prompt. They call this a text prompt and what, how you construct that and what you ask for. So the, again, the way to think about this is if you had a research assistant, you wouldn't just ask them to go and do research in poverty. You say, go and summarize the views of Robert Doerr um, from these papers and go summarize the views of this other scholar. I got it. Or help me put together where these two scholars agree. And so again, you have to think about it as almost like a research assistant you're giving a task to. So why did Elon Musk and various other luminaries in the tech world write a letter saying pause? Well, I think there's enormous fears about where this technology goes. First of all, it's capable of generating incredible misinformation that's very persuasive. And we're seeing this in the text realm, but um, you were seeing it also in the text to image. There are a bunch of these systems called Midjourney, Stable Diffusion, where you could give it a prompt and it can create something that looks like a realistic photograph President Trump being arrested. Mm -hmm. uh, you can create all sorts of misinformation. You can you give text and have it generate a voice that sounds very uh, familiar. Uh, <laughs> we have an example of we this. We have an yeah. example of this. And this is, a, this is a very um, unsettling, what you're about to hear. <laughs> so hold on. Content warning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the American Enterprise Institute is a very special place. So special that I asked Bruce Springsteen to write a song about it. And I'd like to quote from one of the stanzas, from the whispers of the founding fathers to the echoes of today, the spirit of the nation, in the words they say at the heart of the struggle, for a brighter dawn, the Institute, you're the platform where ideas are born. Whoa. So, <laughs> Whoa. That was a system that I gave it, one of the speeches you gave, Robert, and it was trained on that. It learned your voice, your patterns, your inflections. Then I had ChatGPT write a Bruce Springsteen song about AEI. It's a beautiful song, by the way. No, it's not. Gotta, and get, the, I, gotta get the right. Then I had the system do it. And again, it also had, I should say, the awkward sort of not particularly professional way in which I introduce a quote in a speech. <laughs> weren't sure where the quote started and the speech ended. It's, it, it, it's that basically, it, it's it's it brought me down. <laughs> but you could imagine, like again, that's it's fun that we're doing that. But that could get used in all sorts of different ways to influence elections or to influence people and persuade people um, with different things to have people look and say that they're doing things and saying things that they haven't really said. And I mean, that's what our country has just been going through pretty much since foreign adversaries started interfering with our election using social media. Mm -hmm. You could imagine a, a situation where this supercharges that. But then also, there's a little bit of, there's something mysterious about this technology. And I, it feels almost weird and awkward to say that. But the makers of it, even Sam Altman has said that when it produces uh, these essays or these results, they're not entirely sure why it does that. Right. And so there's a lot of fear that the way these technologies could get used or evolved it have a lot of negative impact uh, on American society, but there's enormous benefits too. And so I think a lot of this is about trying to figure out how do you balance and maximize the, the benefits and try to minimize the harms as much well, as did, possible. Well, we always say that, this is, uh, but but you didn't sign the pause letter, did you? Or, no, or I no? did not. And is your view that we should we should interfere in the marketplace and slow this down? There's I, no right answer. <laughs> a, I don't believe we should slow it down. Because I think a slowdown actually gives all the benefit to China that is just trying to accelerate their AI efforts. I think we do need some regulatory guardrails. I think this is 
you know, as conservatives here here in um, in DC, we're we're used to uh, CEOs coming and saying, "Get government, get out of our way." Here you have three of the largest CEOs saying they want some regulatory guardrails to know what does ethical uh, and responsible use of AI look like. And the problem is, I'm not sure we really have a system within the federal government that is ready for that. We don't know who should regulate it, mm-hmm. how they should regulate it, and how to do it in such a way that it's not slowing the progress, but also making sure that it's trying to minimize some of the harms out there. And is it really... Um Audio, I mean, is it is it set up to be a back and forth in a spoken word in, as opposed to where Google and everything is mostly typed? Well, I think the way to think about this is that it's a class of technology. So you, you could do text to almost anything, text to image, text to video, text to audio, uh, or text to text. And so, it, again, you have a lot of different tools out there that can take your text and create something on the other side of it. It can be a picture of a cute dog or it could be a picture of the president getting arrested when he was never arrested. No, but let's just talk about this, a simple application, uh, a quick diagnosis of a health care issue. Um, can someone pick this up, say to it, I had a fever of 100, I have a sore throat, and I get, I'm getting a little chills at night. What do I do? And will the thing immediately say back to me? And maybe, maybe we already do that, and I just didn't know this. Well, we do that a little bit with Google. Yeah. We use some, in, you know, People turn to Dr. Google all the time. All the time already. Um, you can on these systems. They, they're, usually they give an answer to say, well, I'm not a doctor and you should consult a medical professional. Where these systems are really good, though, and I found Google Bard to be very good at this, and mm-hmm. same thing with uh, ChatGPT is we've all gone through something where you get a blood test back, or radiology report, and often it's, it's incoherent. It's a mm-hmm. bunch of different numbers. It makes sense to doctors but don't make sense to you. You give it to one of these systems and ask, help me understand that. And all of a sudden, it gives you a real English translation of what is in the report. And again, it doesn't take the place of the doctor. It just makes you yeah. a little smarter for when you go into the doctor. But do you scan it into your computer and it'll just read paste. it off the scan? Yeah. Uh, everyone has electronic medical records. And you get it as a PDF. And just cut and paste it into it. Wow. Yeah. But to give you a sense like why I think Google is is holding back in some ways, they, they have a large language model that was trained for medical issues. Uh, and it just uh, passed uh, the medical licensing uh, pra- practice exam. Mm-hmm. And that's the first time in history we've had uh, an AI system be able to sort of pass that. So I think that's why all this is directional, that yes, it has shortcomings. Yes, it has limitations. But that, but that but, wouldn't make them hold back. They got they passed the exam. Now they're ready to bring it to market. <laughs> I think they're, they, Google has been um, concerned, and I think rightfully, about how to do this in a responsible way. Because you, you also, these systems can sometimes make up answers that f- sound very plausible, but are completely made up and factually incorrect. Now that's okay when it's a Bruce Springsteen song mm-hmm. or when it's a bio about John Bailey. It's not good when it's a medical diagnosis or interpreting. And so the system, again, the companies are all trying to calibrate this and, and try to figure out what's the right pace at releasing this. What are a few specific applications that you're the most excited about? I'm finding new applications every single day. It is an amazing smart tutor. Uh, You can ask it. um, We've been doing demos lately where you can ask it to give you a tutorial on fractions if you're a struggling sixth grader. Mm -hmm. It'll give you an example. But let's say you're um, a boy and you don't really understand the examples. Just give me the examples using sports metaphors. It'll Mm -hmm. just do sports metaphors. Then you could ask it to do nothing, the same thing, but just use songs from Taylor Swift. And it'll give it. So all of a sudden we have something that can adapt yeah. to, um, 
to a child's interests as well as giving them sort of the academic lessons at, uh, at their own pace. It does an amazing job with structuring data. You can give it raw Excel data and ask it to do an analysis on that. So for all of us that have you know, ever encountered these complicated data sets, you usually have to write formulas in Excel yeah. and do complicated programming. Now all of a sudden you can engage with it and work with the data just using English language. So sticking with, with education, I mean, is it in use now in K-12 education now? Where, how's it showing up in education now? My kids are all grown. Maybe you know something I don't know, but I mean, what's what's happening? Is it already being adopted in, in education spheres? It has a mixed picture in K-12 schools right now. You have some students that are using it to write their essays. So there's a cheating aspect to this, mm-hmm. and schools are trying to stay ahead of it um, with plagiarism. Um, some teachers are using it just to take advantage of its abilities to do lesson planning and all this sort of tedious tasks that keep teachers from actually working with kids. It can do that very quickly and very efficiently. And then also we're seeing new tools um, that are using these technologies uh, in their own platform. So like Salcon has had this amazing tutoring platform uh, for the better part of the last decade. He has been experimenting with ChatGBT. Salcon. Salcon. Yeah, yeah. Has been experimenting with ChatGBT to create a con um, a con virtual assistant that is a little bit of a tutor. Duolingo, which helps people learn foreign languages, is deploying this as a way of creating a, a, a tutorial, like a little smart assistant to help with learning foreign languages. So mm-hmm. okay, I think we're going to see it in a lot of other education systems and applications. But we might be on the cusp of having personalized learning in a way that we never did um, in decades before. Which is, could be a huge advantage. Could be great. I mean, you know, could get people to learn to read better and learn to do fractions better than they have. And, and so there are, there's a lot of potential there. So you're, you're net on the, on the net sort of negative or positive. You're positive. I'm a net positive. I, yeah, I do think yeah. there are, are some concerns, this misinformation we were talking about, mm-hmm. the way foreign adversaries could use this to interfere with an election. I do worry about that. I worry about different types of biases, but also I think the only way you can, uh, fix some of those rough edges is by testing it and getting out into the hands of users like ourselves that we can give feedback to the companies and then they can recalibrate. Do you foresee any way to say, like, say if there is a doctored photo or audio, how how will we be able to tell? It's a great question. They're trying, OpenAI has been trying to address mm-hmm. this and they, they're experimenting with digital watermarks that yeah. could be interpreted by other systems. But honestly, I, I looking at some of the, the text to image or the, Robert's voice, like, you really listen to that recording, you would say like, it doesn't, it sounds like Robert, but not entirely. Mm-hmm. And that's what I really worry about is that I think for a lot of people, uh, this is all going to sound pretty persuasive or it's going to look persuasive. Mm-hmm. And you're saying I'm persuasive. I like I, you're very <laughs> persuasive. I am. Especially the, persuasive for some people. I don't so know. So chat Robert. That yeah. Yeah. So. Robot Robert. <laughs> the, uh, um, I, I, this may be a very um, naive question. I think I've revealed my naivete about this. I, you know, I've heard about it, I've read about it theoretically, but I've not had time to actually experiment with it and, and get into it deep. But um, one of the things that I like about the search engine and Google, and the, the analogy you use is a library, is that for a researcher, you always, you always know who the source is mm-hmm. for each particular fact. And that allows you to make sure that you are providing the appropriate citations for the work you're doing. I mean, in these various requests that you make of this application, can you say, give me this answer, but I want everything you give me properly cited to the original source? Can it do that? Uh, ChatGPT can. Uh, Bing does. Bing gives source citations. And you can also direct Bing um, 
to a, to an actual source. So one of the ways I've used it in the past is, you know, we have these federal register notices that are very lengthy as a part of a rule exercise. You could give it to Bing and say, read this and then summarize it and also pull out all the questions from it. That's not going out. It's actually using the actual document. It's analyzing it. Uh, and it's coming up with the questions that were asked in it. Yeah, but go back to that. That I mean, that's an important point in the education. You know, the cheating paper thing. If you say, if you say, if you say, do not give me anything that doesn't have the proper citation, mm-hmm. that does make it harder to give you something. Makes it much harder. That's not phone. That's phony. I mean, you know, you you describe mm-hmm. this business of well, you could put a phony face up and a phony name, but but then, of course, they'd have a phony citation, I guess. You just sort yeah. of make it up. Well, and there's been cases where I, early I was getting one of the systems to try to just draft a Supreme Court amicus brief, mm-hmm. and it made up cases, and it made up the cite. So it had citations, mm-hmm. yeah. but they were completely made up. And that's part of the, what, again, has held Google and some of these other companies back is that they don't want to release something where – Again, it makes it look like it's really hard to tell what's real and what's made up. Well, one of our scholars tweeted that he had asked his – he was playing with it too, and he asked it to give him, you know, examples of his work. And it gave him three things he'd never written. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, you know, is, is we'd yeah. like him to have write, write a little more so we could have a few more things to cite. That would be good. Uh, I think the, the newer systems are getting a little bit better at, at minimizing that. They're not 100%, um, but it's, it's still – Mm-hmm. It's getting better. Every iteration seems to be getting a little bit better at that. Okay, so last question, a little bit different than this, because we've been talking about this new application, and we wanted to bring you in to get your view on this uh, uh, right away. Although we're weeks behind, but we're catching up. Um, we recognize that here at Banter that we're, we're, the, <laughs> we're the thoughtful. We take time we to take get it time right. To get it right. Uh, but I was going to ask you about the technology companies and China and Apple, Hmm. you know, and because you are are someone who pays attention to the technology industry. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Tim Cook was in China recently, along with some other major CEOs. He's very prominently quoted as saying how happy he was to be back in China. Is Apple, for one, and are other technology companies that have had a very big involvement in partnering with China in a variety of ways and Chinese entities, is there is do you see a pullback there? Do they do they realize how fraught our relationship with China is, and and actually some of our foreign policy would scholars would say dangerous. Have you are you sensing a, a new tone among your technology um, um, executives that you know? Yeah, I am. I think for a, a couple different reasons. One is. Um, the COVID disruptions, especially in the supply chain, showed how just relying on China for supplies, suppliers, is an enormous vulnerability because as COVID cases were going through, factories were getting shot and it just was um, hurting a ton of American companies. Second, I, I think they, they are understanding that the only thing that's really bipartisan in Congress right now is countering uh, China. And they understand that they need to decouple uh, their manufacturing base and some of their relationships there. They'll never completely leave China because China is both um, where they produce so many of these these goods, but also it's a customer too. Mm-hmm. But I, I am seeing a lot of the companies shift their manufacturing to other parts. Um, it, it won't always come here to the U.S. It'll be French-shoring to other liberal democratic countries, but that's mm-hmm. happening. Because, you know, the, there's a big story in the paper today about the 
in in manufacturing, you know, there's, there's a boom in manufacturing boom. construction, mm-hmm. and that has to be a result of people retrenching or reshoring, pulling back from China. And so I, my view is that is that Cook kind of goes over to give window dressing to the Chinese while he quietly executes on a on a subtle withdrawal. Yeah, they're moving a lot of manufacturing, and um, so it's, he, while he maintains what he's doing now in order to keep his. Mm-hmm. Um, one more thing about uh, artificial intelligence. When I was out in California back when the big first big announcement came, an executive told me there that the energy required to produce this technology is enormous. Do you have a sense of that, of, of the drain the, the, the artificial intelligence requires on various, you know, either – materials or energy or, or no, am I wrong great, about that? Or no, you're you... not wrong. It's a great question. It's, I mean, the computing power this is to, I mean. to, to both with training these systems, but also just to make them work for the millions of people that are using them is enormous. And that does that that's different than having a data center. That's having very sophisticated, robust, powerful computing systems that are able to do empower these different types of systems. Those do have an enormous energy uh, requirement, and that's been one of the concerns. Uh, is that you know, in, in feeding this, you're also driving up a lot of energy costs with it. Yeah, I, I think that's an area where, you know, if, again, if it, it turns out to be a huge drain on on the energy in a way that is counterproductive, that you could get some some way in which government could regulate or or be concerned about it, because you know we're. I, I just wonder about that. I, I think that's an area for potential discussion. Yeah. Um, anything else? Anything else you want to say? Anything else you didn't get to say? No, just um, I'm just excited for the conversation. So, and, uh, mm-hmm. I, I I do think about like ways we might be able to use this here at AI too. That I mean, you think about all the text our scholars have written, and like adding one of these systems mm-hmm. on top of it, so people can just query like what has been said about poverty over the years here uh, yeah. at AI, and so. I think it's going to make us better as scholars. It'll make us better as an institution. And um, I think it's exciting. I think we're in the very early innings of this technology. So I'm excited to see what's going to be on the horizon. Don't tell the research assistants. <laughs> <laughs> just so you know, listeners, uh, just to show the power of this technology, John decided to blast an announcement for the entire building of my voice saying that AI was merging with CAP, the Center for American, <laughs> and it caused a hysteria in the building. And, of Belated course, it was April com- Fool. completely false. Um, I've also anyway. sent an email to the, the board members that I got a promotion from you. So thank yeah, you. Yeah. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. Too. <laughs> thank you very much, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.